Boomerang people of the Kulin Nation, the traditional owners and custodians of this land upon which we live and work. We pay our respects to Elders past and present and extend that respect to other First Nations Australians who may be in our audience or listening to this broadcast. We acknowledge the continued resistance of First Nations peoples in the face of ongoing colonisation and settlement and that sovereignty was never ceded and a treaty never signed. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. And good morning, listeners. How are we today? Yeah, you're listening to uh, 3CR Wednesday Breakfast. In... And oh, in case you're wondering, that's Eidwin back with us. Yeah, we've got Claudia also on the other mic. Hello. It's It's been a while. It has. I was just driving in this morning thinking, when was Eidwin back in the breakfast seat? Was yeah. it middle of the year, beginning of the year? Beginning of the year, I think. So it's wonderful to rejoin um, the Wednesday Breakfast team for what's going to be a very special uh, episode today or interviews, set of interviews today, show. Yeah, all of the above. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, well, Ivan has initiated a, a theme for our second last show of the year. Mm. Do you want to tell listeners a bit about what you've got going for us? Yeah, sure. So today's episode um, or today's breakfast show, we're going to focus on universities and sort of all of the knowledge and research that's currently going on in them. Now, this was, but this has been spurred somewhat by a personal um, point in my life. I'm graduating today. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I'm graduating from my bachelor's degree and I'm actually quite crushed mainly because I will lose access to RMIT's, my, my university's library next year, <laughs> which is really annoying because there's just, there's so much um, rich information that I currently have at my fingertips. And yeah, as part of graduating, you lose that. So this episode and today was sort of inspired by that and sort of going, right, if we're leaving the university setting and a lot of us don't live in the university setting from a day to day, how do we bring it into our lives and, yeah, look at it day to day. Yeah, getting all that knowledge out into the real world and mm. allowing it to be used by different organisations, individuals, yeah, to share the, the knowledge that's been gathered. Yeah, well, it's a really good um, impetus for a show and from that we've uh, hooked up with five different postgraduate students who are all at different stages of their studies and research mm. They're all uh, pursuing different areas of research and they're all uh, at different postgraduate levels. So we've got mm. some honours students, master's students, PhD students, um, and we're just going to have a bit of a chat with them and hear what they're uh, researching, how it relates to the world at large. Mm. And, yeah, if they've got any concerns about where that knowledge is going to go. Totally. And, I mean, this is a this is one of the an interviewer's nightmare because it's just the Opportunities and the topics are endless. <laughs> and then we tell them they've got 10 minutes. That's right. <laughs> we tell them we've got 10 minutes. So, I mean, we've got a wonderful mix. And, um, Claudia, like, we were so lucky. We got a real um, mix of people at different stages of study, which yeah. is 
cool um, because, you know, we, we wanted to sort of bring into the conversation people who are just starting, people midway through, and I'm sure, you know, um, really in the trenches when it comes to writing their, their piece. And then those who were sort of starting to see see the end of the tunnel and figuring out, okay, all this theoretical knowledge is very useful, but how does it apply to the field that it's going to be contri- contributing towards? So, yeah, a real mix of topics, a real mix of stages uh, was a big emphasis for us that we've we've got lined up for you guys. That's really exciting. And, yeah, we're going to try and... D- going to try and have both sides of the pie today where we're going to talk about the topics they're discussing and also uh, you were bringing up in preparation to this episode the fact that a lot of these people have been studying during COVID and have had to have their theses um, or projects changed and altered and just that that sort of Mm. wealth of experience that they've had in the university setting over the last two years or three or whatever. Yeah exactly it hasn't been the most typical of uh, periods. Um, so should we just give listeners a little rundown of who's going to be coming on? I think uh, your first cab off the rank, as Ali used to say. Yeah. <laughs> Seem to have picked up that expression. Yeah, so um, we're going to kick off the show with Aidan Kennedy. Uh, now he is a, he was an honours student, I should say, doing his thesis in reporting on recession, media coverage of economic crises in Australia. And he's a he's a history major, so we're going to start historical, and have a look at a few um, sort of Australia's yeah Australia's history to learn a bit about where we are currently, economic and media coverage wise. So looking yep. at that bias and particularly recessions. Yeah, recessions especially, but um, <laughs> very timely. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> <Yes>. ominous. <laughs> yeah, and well, Aidan's finished his honours now, so he started it during one of the most, you know, during that, again, COVID period, recession, big headlines. So fascinating on that front. We're then switching quite differently from humanities to into STEM uh, with an old high school mate who actually uh, expressed interest in joining in on this broadcast, which is awesome, uh, Stephanie Tai, and she's going to be bringing in her understanding and her experiences in her course in clinical audiology. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So it was kind of awesome. I put out some feelers for this episode and said, anyone interested? And Steph got straight back to me and was like, can I come on and talk about my field? So excited to hear a bit about, yeah, what clinical audiology is and a bit about accessibility for hearing impairments in society. So that should be good. Yeah, and this is what it's all about too because, you know, the researchers get the opportunity to share their research through a media outlet like us and that's how we get it out there Mm. to the wider world. Yeah, so at 7.45 we'll be having a chat with Daye Gang and Daye is a barrister, a human rights lawyer, uh, but she is also doing a PhD in restorative justice, which is an alternative uh, pathway for justice uh, for people that don't want to go down the criminal justice system and the area that she's looking at is sexual and family violence so I think this is particularly relevant because we've had so much media uh, around the Bruce Learman rape trial case and you know we've heard what Brittany Higgins Mm. has said about her experience and the trauma that um, she's experienced as a result of the the court process and the cross-examination so yeah I think this will be really timely Mm. to hear about what an alternative pathway could could look like and um yeah 
I've got to say, uh, restorative justice, you know, we've heard of rehabilitative justice and that sort of thing. So it'll be an interesting different angle. Absolutely. And then that'll be followed by uh, Stacey Pidgeon at around eight o'clock. Now, Stacey actually spoke to us last week. She chatted to us about uh, the Royal Life Saving uh, Australia's report on drowning statistics and preventing drowning. But this week, uh, she's coming back in a different capacity as a PhD candidate, talking about her research uh, into a particular subgroup of people who are vulnerable to drowning. And she's looking at migrant populations living in Australia. She's looking at uh, how drowning uh, affects them and what risk mitigation strategies uh, are relevant to those people. Wow, cool. That's yep. so two completely different. Well, we said we'd have a real variety. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, because uh, at 8.15 to sort of the end of the show, we're rounding out with um, Christina Hernandez, uh, who has a year to go on her PhD uh, project, Biosensitive Urban Design, or I should say bio-inclusive uh, urban design and that difference between language will become important in the interview <laughs> um, and, and her project which is called Letting Nature Speak. So we're going to round out with um, uh, yeah, discussion on biodiversity and design. So yeah, five very different interviews. Um, I guess let's get to it. Yeah, we'll let listeners digest all that. <laughs> and have you got a song for us, Edwin? Yes, I do. It, this is um, Wet Legs Chasse Lounge. I always say that word wrong, but here's the song. It kicks ass.
long, on the chaise long, on the chaise long, on the chaise long, all day long, on the chaise long, on the chaise long, on the chaise long, on the chaise long, all day long, on the chaise long, on the chaise long, on the chaise long, on the chaise long, all day long, on the chaise long. Bisexual Alliance Victoria is a not-for-profit organisation dedicated to equality and justice for multi-gender attracted people, including bi, pan, regardless of label or no label at all, their partners and allies. Bisexual Alliance runs discussion groups in person and online. The group offers a safe and fun space to share your experiences, ask any questions regarding your sexual identity and provide peer support. Bisexual Alliance is especially keen to hear from multi-gender attracted people in regional and rural Victoria. Donations of $2 or more to Bisexual Alliance are now tax deductible. For more information, visit our website at bi-alliance.org, email info at bi-alliance.org or find us on Facebook or Twitter. A 3CR supporter. I'm bisexual. Did you miss 3CR's broadcast of the inaugural historic first Trans Pride March Melbourne on Sunday 13 November? Perhaps you want to break a binary and listen to it again. Well, either way, you can. It's now available for listening at 3cr.org.au, Trans Pride March Melbourne. Turn it up, feeling that beacon under me, keeping on it all night. Join in the historic occasion and support our trans and gender diverse communities here in Nam. 3CR Radical Radio, proudly supporting trans and gender diverse people as part of diversity in Nam. Oh, right. 3cr.org.au, Trans Pride March Melbourne. And you're listening to Wednesday Breakfast. It's just clicked over to 7.15 and we have our first interview, which is Aidan Kennedy. He should be on the line. Hello, Aidan. Are you there? Hi, I wouldn't. Yes, I am. <laughs> Hello. Um, well, kicking off our sort of university special, can you introduce yourself a little bit and what your research project was? Well, yes. Yeah. Um, my name is Aidan Kennedy. I am a uh, current humanities teacher at a uh, local Melbourne high school. Um, and my research specialty uh, was in uh, media analysis of coverage of previous Australian economic crises. 
Mm. And I wanted to ask about this piece and, you know, covering recessions and the media bias especially. Why why now? Why was it this piece and, and last year, I guess? Uh, well, there's, uh, there's a number of good reasons for that. Um, firstly, Australia is... Uh, we're, we're in, just like in a lot of things, we're, we're, we're very different from a lot of other Western countries. For instance, we're one of the only countries with the level of media monopolisation and ownership in the Western world um, with uh, large conglomerates like Seven West, uh, Nine Fairfax and uh, News Limited uh, having a pretty strong hold over radio, television and print media combined. Um, Secondly, uh, Australia's um, Australia has been in what we can describe as an economic golden age for the past ten to fifteen years, uh, essentially since the global financial crisis. We're the only Western country to have seen continual growth since the year two thousand. Um, and what's really interesting is that um, this situation has been quite precarious for a number of years now. For instance. Australia fell into a uh, per capita recession in, at the start of 2019. But um, what was interesting was that during the pandemic, when uh, Victoria was began to be locked down, uh, a lot of modern media outlets were blaming the Victorian government, and specifically Daniel Andrews, for uh, Australia's economic hardship, despite the fact that we were essentially heading towards that anyway for a number of years at that point. Gotcha. So talk us through the method um, of study for, for a history thesis. How are you sort of looking at the past um, to sort of better understand the future? Yeah, so it might surprise some listeners to hear this, but um, Australia, or, or sorry, at least history, has um, is quite notorious among the humanities as it has, uh, while there are certainly methodologies out there, there is uh, a number of inconsistencies that are often often go unaddressed in academia, especially considering that history is closer to a narrative, um, which often means that uh, methodology is at least sidelined for the idea of telling a good story, which, if we're going to be fair, um, people are much more likely to read and remember a good story <laughs> rather than uh, a long list of academic facts all strung together without real connection. Um, my, uh, so, so taking this sort of, sort of lack of methodology into account and, um, and remembering that historians actually, we want to be, we want to be seen in a, in a similar light to scientists. We want to be seen as objective and we want to be seen as telling the truth as best as possible. Um, keeping that in mind, um, I, I approached my, my own historical study with a, a, a fair bit more, a fair bit more methodology in mind. Um, so, for instance, I had a very clear procedure for analysing news articles, uh, my collection processes, uh, ways that I would analyse the historical context and so on. And so I tried to keep the same method and a consistent method throughout my study. Um, so just, however, just on yeah. that, you were looking at, like, three separate um, economic... Examples of recession throughout Australian history, 
and 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 really digging into these case studies, what were the then the the key takeaways, I suppose, from the work that you did, and and looking at that with this method? Yeah. So the the, the big takeaways from 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 my study, and I think the takeaways that all honors students go uh, go away from their study with is that there is absolutely always more research to be done. <laughs> um, and 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 it might surprise some people, but a year is is a year and sixteen thousand words is nowhere near enough scope to properly analyze an area and to be fair and to actually gain an mm-hmm. understanding of truth there. Um, so that and that was that was that was sort of the kind of takeaway that I think and not like I would I would very clearly say that no one was able to uh, <laughs> was able to finish their topic that they'd started. Um, and the rabbit hole always goes deeper. There's always more to read. There's always more to understand. There's always more opinions to get, more interviews to do, uh, more articles to analyse. I mean, I, I surveyed over I surveyed over 300 newspaper articles, specific newspaper articles, and I only was able to include... I only had the time and space to include analyses of nine mm. in my final thesis, to, just to give you an idea of the scale of research being done. Uh and that's not to mention or any and all the secondary texts that were looked at. And the last thing on the key takeaways is that um, history is unlimited in scope. Um, humans are constantly generating more information that can be considered history, uh, but the historian themselves is limited in time, energy, and thought. We literally cannot comprehend the scale of information that is currently that is present in history, let alone the information that's now available in our present. Sure. If that makes any sense. <laughs> no, it does, it does. And it's interesting to kind of get that um, experience of what, what doing it honours is like. But I suppose in the on the topic of the reporting on recession and media bias and these, these ideas you brought up about um, the media monopoly, did you find any sort of discussion or, or sort of uh, takeaway from how we report on the economy in Australia and, and recession. Yeah, so um, what we can sort of see in this period is this big interplay, of, and, and the period that we're looking at in my study was 1975 to the global financial crisis in 2008. Um, but what was very interesting to see in this period was that uh, over the course of this period, a lot of media monopolisation was occurring. For instance, um, news, uh, news Limited with the Australian went from being a relatively sort of a relatively small yet influential masthead in the um, in nineteen seventy five to uh, quite an influential power paper, especially in the Canberra circuit, the Canberra bubble um, in two thousand and eight. Uh, you also had um, the restrictions on media ownership taken off. Uh, which meant that uh, a lot of these media companies were buying up more and more. You also got to see the lifespan of some of Australia's oldest media uh, companies like Fairfax, uh, all the way from Fairfax's, what we what we would call Fairfax's height in the 1970s um, to uh, the, the days before their downfall. And I mean, 2008 to 2013 is when we start to see Fairfax really lose its grip on the age and lose its grip on its company's integrity uh, to the point where it needs to, to the point where they're selling off assets. Um, I got to speak to one of the ages, um, one of the ages editors during that period of time, and he te- and from what he tells me, the uh, 
the number of people working at the paper um, was a fraction of what it once was by 2008. And this is before the global recession. Right. So the, 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 this, this level of downsizing is occurring pre-economic crises. Right. Okay, and that changes how it's reported once we do we do enter an economic crisis. Yeah, yeah. No, exactly. Um, the other thing, the other big takeaway that I got to see was um, the influence and the lifespan of um, neoliberal economic philosophy and its acceptance within mainstream thinking. Um, in 1975, uh, with the introduction of computer modelling into economics, neoliberalist thinking starts to become uh, a bit more popular and a bit more, it, it, it really starts to shine in the 70s, and you can see that kind of cut through with certain papers taking certain lines. Um, obviously, some papers taking more right-wing lines than others, some papers taking more left-wing lines than others. Um, but what was really interesting to see was uh, by the time we get to the 80s, there's a very clear uh, market knows best. Ah, rhetoric, right. Yeah that's coming out, yeah. Um, however, you do see a kind of slip back in 2008, global recession, where there is a level of introspection and reflection going on in Western capitalism, where we are having, we are asking these big questions about deregulation, which allowed markets to open up and which allowed for their abuse by um, mortgage lenders and mm. mortgage brokers. Well, thank you so much, um, and that's that's what we've got time for today. But thanks for coming on and talking about the how this period of 1975-2008 has shaped um, what we're now seeing in reporting um, and giving us a bit of insight into history. Awesome. Thank you very much, uh, Arben. Have a lovely day. <laughs> thank you. You too.
get your copy of 3CR's magnificent book. It's a stunning history of the people, programs and issues at the station since 1976. On sale now for the amazing price of just $20. Pick one up at the station or jump online and place your order. Radical Radio, celebrating 40 years of 3CR. On sale now for $20. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children aged three and four can access 15 hours per week of free kindergarten. In a kinder program, children learn through play, art, music and dance. Qualified teachers create culturally safe places for Aboriginal children and families. Koori kids shine at kindergarten. Find out more at vic.gov.au forward slash koori-kids-shine. Authorised by the Victorian Government, Melbourne. A 3CR supporter. And you're listening to Wednesday Breakfast. We've just had our first interview with Aidan Kennedy and that was followed by the song uh, Memory by a little Australian band, Program, who you can find on Spotify. Pretty funky. Anyway, uh, next up we're going to jump in from Humanities into STEM with Stephanie Tai, who's on the line. And she's going to be chatting about her project or her work in clinical audiology. So good morning, Steph. Good morning, Adwin. Thank you for having me on. Absolutely. Um, I wanted to start off with the question we're asking everyone, which is, can you please, you know, introduce yourself and your research field and how you got into it? Ah, yeah. So um, my name's Stephanie. Um, I sort of started um, this whole journey in audiology about two years ago for my master's um, called Master's of Clinical Audiology. And I sort of stumbled into this rabbit hole coming from a um, very broad degree of biomedical science. And it's been a whirlwind, but um, to sort of sum up what audiologists do, it's everything to do with um, hearing and balance in a person. Um, So whether you've got hearing loss or you've got vertigo or, you know, just the general sensation that the room around you is, spinning um, where you'll go to. Gotcha. And I wanted to ask, you know, what have you learnt or what have been some interesting things you've learned about audiology and hearing in society throughout your course that may have surprised you? Yeah, so that's a pretty interesting question to sort of go into. Um, I think the first thing that sort of jumped out to me is the real stigma um, that surrounds going to a clinical audiologist and what that really entails for a lot of people Um, and sort of the reason that comes with that is largely due to retail audiology Um, and this term that I'm throwing out there it's really about sort of how going into a clinic there's a lot of pressure for some clinicians from overhead to really push for Um, people to take on hearing aids Um, and it's just caused this really bad reputation on our industry and sort of tarnished the good work that a lot of audiologists are doing. Um, So that's probably one of those things that stood out to me at the beginning and then sort of stemming off from that um, there's other issues like um, very late or delayed diagnosis and that's really attached to the issue of shame. Mm. Um, Can you talk us through that? I mean, why? what is it about um, 
perhaps hearing issues or something like that that might cause an individual shame or, or I suppose even delayed in seeking out a diagnosis? What's, what's happening there? Yeah, there's actually, um, it's quite common for a lot of people to, you know, not really perceive the hearing as an issue. We get a lot of common um, beliefs from a lot of patients and clients who say, oh, you know, my hearing isn't bad enough or it's everyone around me who's muffling. It's a very gradual process um, for a lot of um, people because hearing loss is sort of uh, a wear and tear um, condition where, you know, it just comes with um, natural ageing process um, other than, you know, a, like hearing loss from a young age. And so it sort of creeps up on you and it it's not, hey, you know, hearing loss is suddenly here, <laughs> hello, <laughs> knocking on your door sort of thing, yeah. And I suppose it's also one of those um, invisible sort of situations where it's very hard to see or have telltale signs of somebody. Um, what, what are some sort of things to be aware of or of someone who might be experiencing hearing loss that you might be talking to in a conversation? Mm, so there's a few signs you might be able to pick up on on, on people who might have a hearing loss. Um, often they will try to move um, their ear to one side, trying to get a better um, angle on where the sound is coming from to sort of um, alleviate the strain that they're having. Um, another sort of sign that you might pick up on is sometimes they might be dominating a conversation um, because, you know, it's it's quite hard to fill in the gaps. So they would want to bring in a topic that is easier for them to follow or sort of um, have more control of the conversation so there's less filling in the gaps for them, if that makes sense. Gotcha. And I, I know um, when we were sort of chatting about this and, and your field, you, you mentioned like it can often lead to communication breakdown and a lot of stress for the individual. Can you talk us a little bit about, yeah, I suppose that, that consequence of not necessarily addressing or the delayed diagnosis and what it can do to someone? Yeah, absolutely. So I guess on that note, um, a hearing impairment or a hearing loss, it's really um, a form of communication breakdown, I'd say. Mm. You know, it communication is such a vital part and function of, participating in society and the relationships that you have. Um, and so when when someone isn't able to hear a part of that conversation, it's really negatively impacted. Mm. Um, and, you know, what that really means is that it can lead to social isolation and it sort of cascades onto other things from there. And this, this brings us to specifically what you were looking at in your thesis or, or focusing on your, for your thesis project as part of your degree, which is mm-hmm. uh, hearing device usage in young children during the pandemic. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, that project and what you were finding as sort of the consequences or what, what the research was showing you? Yeah, so for this project, um, it was across the year and um, we collected data through surveys with parents. Um, so the hearing device usage over three different time points. So prior to the pandemic, um, very early on in the pandemic during um, quite strict lockdown, and then in the middle of um, the pandemic where we sort of was in the worst of the worst, 
Um, and what we really found from this research was there was a very clear association between the pandemic and a reduction um, in hearing device use in these children. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was sort of the main point of this research. Um, and we also found that with higher usage, um, these children tended to have hearing loss in both ears. Um, they had poorer hearing or they were of older age. So these were the sort of things we observed. Yeah. Yeah, gotcha. And uh, and that, what are the necessarily consequences on development? Do they have consequences? Would that be another thesis in of itself? Um, what was the, the takeaway for that? Yeah, so in terms of that, there has been prior research to sort of um, form that connection between low usage and what that means for a child. And um, what research has found um, was that, you know, higher usage or what we normally can, um, call it is consistent hearing device use mm. is correlated with improved speech, um, language development and um, sort of quality of life ultimately in children with hearing loss. So it's quite a significant um, factor to consider now that we know that, you know, the COVID pandemic has really impacted mm. device use. And I understand that you guys are sort of putting that research together and seeing if you can get published. So best of luck with that. Because <laughs> um, <laughs> I know you. that's a, that's a pretty uphill battle for most researchers as to after you spend you know, a number of years crawling through data and putting it all together, trying to then get it out there into the world. Um, But I wanted to sort of finish off. There's this online trend I've been seeing where people of their field sort of identify or give top tips uh, Mm -hmm. for their field that I suppose the public wouldn't be aware of. And it sounds like I know with hearing, again, some of the things we were talking about was the fact that – you know, in public spaces, it's actually quite hard to hear over different layers of noise or noise pollution has a big role to play. So I was wondering if you could give us along those lines, you know, sort of tips or, or, or things to be conscious of around space and hearing that we might not think about from mm-hmm. not being clinical audiologists ourselves. Yeah, so I think um, there's three main points that I'll sort of um, touch through today. Um, I think the first thing is, the earlier, the better. So that's the real key. Um, so as soon as mm-hmm. you realise maybe you're struggling a bit more with hearing, it's, it's best to start taking action whenever possible. Um, you know, there's a lot of downsides to waiting, for example, relationship issues or cognitive decline or um, even depression and social isolation. And this all really stems from that Um, communication breakdown we sort of talked about at the start. Mm -hmm. Um, And then the second thing is sort of being proactive in preserving your hearing. So what that really means is minimising your exposure to dangerously loud noises and wearing ear protection whenever it's appropriate. So, for example, um, you can... There's a way for everyone to try get custom earplugs if, if that's a thing that you're interested in. Um, to just tone down the amount of loud sounds around you. Um, Mm. And lastly, really how to support someone around you with hearing loss, Mm -hmm. I guess. Um, 
and what's really important is that everyone's experience with hearing loss can be very different. Um, so for someone who might be more open about their hearing loss, they may appreciate you asking them what you can do to help them understand or hear a conversation better. So there's also other sort of strategies that we do suggest as well, um, mainly whenever possible, face the person um, when you're talking to them, making sure that your mouth is uncovered. Obviously, during um, COVID-19, that's a very difficult thing. <laughs> <laughs> um, another thing is probably getting their attention before you start a conversation um, and making what you're saying very enunciated and clear. Mm-hmm. Um, and just making sure there's just generally good lighting to help with lip reading. So these are sort of the key important um, strategies that we tell a lot of people, um, and especially family members and friends. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Steph, for coming us on, giving us this, yeah, this look into uh, a world that I'm sure a lot of us don't get to see or understand unless there is a problem. So it's good to sort of get that proactive conversation underway. Thank you so much for having me. (laughs) Thanks. I didn't know what to do with my life. I didn't have a clue. But it was all right because, you see, I was given a handbook, a manual, if you will, by the DHS, no less. And I got a stress that it really helped. It turned my
think you need to go clean yourself up, kid. And welcome back to Wednesday Breakfast. If you've just tuned in, Claudia here with Eidwin, and we've been discussing university research projects with a number of uh, current research students working uh, in different fields and at different uh, levels and stages of study. So we've we've heard from uh, someone working in clinical audiology and someone working on a research project looking at the, the history of media coverage of Australian recessions uh, in the period before the GFC. So we've, we've already had two very contrasting discussions and we're going to dip into our third one now on a, another topic again. And just a warning uh, that this next segment touches on the trauma of victim survivors of sexual assault. If this might be triggering for you, uh, you may wish to tune out for the next 15 minutes. So our next guest is Daye Gang, who is a PhD candidate at Monash University, finalising her thesis on the topic of restorative justice for sexual and family violence. Daye also practices as a barrister in the areas of administrative law, criminal law and international human rights law. In 2020, she won the International Bar Association's Outstanding Young Lawyer Award. Welcome, Daye. Hi, good morning. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us. Now, we've been starting off this uh, sort of program asking our guests how they got into their topic, but I'm going to start with a slightly different take on that question. (laughs) You're a barrister specialising in accountability for North Korean human rights abuses, and you're doing a PhD in restorative justice for sexual and family violence. Is there a link between these two areas of law and what led you to embark on this PhD? Yeah, sure. So um, coming to the bar and North Korean human rights accountability and then accountability for sexual and family violence, they all happen sort of very organically and at different times for me. But the golden thread, I guess, in there is the question of accountability. We know that a whole lot of horrible things are happening in the world. So is there anything at all that we can do to make things a little bit better for the people that are people who are experiencing them? Um, in some ways, um, in some ways, it's a little bit idiosyncratic that I'm a barrister working in the courts of law. But then I, you know, in some parts of my practice, I have to turn away from the law and away from the courts um, in relation to cases like North Korea. Uh, you know, many, many sexual and family violence cases that will never see the inside of a courtroom. So we have to consider what alternative pathways of justice there might be in many of these situations where people do not trust the courts or don't want to go to the courts. Sure. Well, that's a a perfect um, uh, segue to my next question. Can you explain to listeners what is restorative justice? Uh, So I've spent six and a half years investigating what is restorative justice, and the answer is that there's no one answer because it has to be flexible to, you know, to every single different case. The core value of restorative justice is that it has to be voluntary and it has to be tailored to the needs of the people who participate in it. So ordinarily, you would focus on, you know, defining it by the process so the participants affected by a particular act or an event get together, you know, in one place, um, to discuss the consequences or the aftermath of what happened during 
that time. Um, you'll see that the focus is really on the process because that's that's the the core of how we can define it. And if you try to define it any more in relation to your potential outcomes or your desired desired um, agreements coming out from that conference, then we risk limiting participants into a particular pathway, which then, you know, brings up these complex questions about what do we expect and what do we expect victims to act like in a conference, and what do we expect perpetrators to bring to the table. Sure. If we perhaps look at, we've had a very high-profile case recently um, with Bruce Learman's, uh trial uh, and Brittany Higgins' um, response, very public response about the impact of that court process and uh, the cross-examination on her, on her personally, and the, the trial was actually abandoned uh, because of of concerns for her safety. So that's really uh, thrust that type of approach into the the spotlight. Using um, not that particular case, but that that type of process, the criminal mm. justice process, as a, a, a point of contrast. Can you tell us how restorative justice could uh, what what it could look like and how it would be different in you know the setting the environment uh, the the public or private nature of it and and in the way in which um, it's facilitated does it have that potential to be aggressive in the same way as uh, a legal interrogation <laughs> as as mm. uh, I think uh, Brittany Higgins might have described it can be. Mm. Um. I think the potential of restorative justice is really um, that it can be tailored to any different situation and in a situation where there's been a lot of public attention, you know, on particular cases, um, there is a question to be asked about um, who does the victim actually want in the room? Is it the person who raped them or is it the person that they allege raped them or is it somebody else who covered up the rape? Right. Isn't that a very important question in situations, for example, of complex family violence where, you know, there has been an abuser in the family and everybody knows about it and everybody covered it up or everybody ignored that it was happening. Um, and so the great flexibility about restorative justice is that you do not have to put your abuser or you do not have to put your rapist on trial. You can say to your to the potential, you know, the program staff or the facilitator, actually, you know, what's not important is this, you know, is... Um, Sorry, it's not the abuser that's important because I don't want anything to do with them anymore. And that's my, you know, that's my understanding of justice in relation to the abuser. But then this person whom I trusted very much and who was not there for me when I really needed them, I need to have a conversation with them to make sure that they understand what happened to me and the consequences of all, and the impact of me, uh, sorry, the impact of um people not being there for me when I most needed it in life, right? So your participants can be different. Um, the choice of venue can be different according to, you know, where the participants feel comfortable with. It really depends on, you know, the resources that the program holds in order to be able to make these things happen for them. The degree of preparation can be different according to a particular victim's needs or, you know, even a perpetrator's needs. Um, every program that I've been able to study during my thesis research has been different, um, and that's the great strength, I think, of restorative justice programs that are able to develop and blossom organically according to the needs of the victims in that jurisdiction. Um, and of course, just to just to go back to the original premise of the question, which is that you know the, the conversation around restorative justice has really emerged as a response or as a contrast to the criminal justice system, but it doesn't have to because. We know that 
we know that underreporting is so rife in relation to police because people don't trust police and then people don't trust the courts and then there's, you know, the media coverage of these horrible prosecutions where things don't um, go as smoothly for the victim as we would like or the complainant as we would like. Um, and so we know that there is a huge phenomenon where most people who experience sexual and family violence don't ever report to police, don't consider that, or, and the research says that many victims do not consider a prosecution the best justice response for them. They don't consider it an element of justice, and that's even more so for underserved communities who've never seen the police as on their side, right? Um, and so there is a huge, huge group of victims who might consider a restorative justice option as the justice option that they would personally like. And then conversations about is it public or is it private or is it, you know, is it reprivatizing this wicked phenomenon? All of that has to fall away because eventually all the people in the room are the victim and the people directly impacted by it and the people that the, the victim wants in there. You know, what's more important than the victim getting justice? And how would a victim survivor know about restorative justice as an option if, um, you know, assuming that someone doesn't make a complaint to, to the police, how would they then go about uh, learning about this and knowing that they have this opportunity to seek redress in a different way? Yeah, that's right. So that's, you know, partly a question of research dis dissemination, which is my responsibility. And then there's, um, there are several programs that are now just being started up by the state government of Victoria, um, which is very promising, although we don't know a whole lot about it. And I don't think it's been, I'm not sure that it's been marketed very, very widely. Um, and then there are, um, to my knowledge, three practice, three restorative justice practices that are run by um, the Centres Against Sexual Assault in Victoria. So there are a few programs and you would really you know, have to be in the right place at the right time to be able to know about them. But hopefully as these programs um, become more accepted with the public, um, as they become, or as we know more, as we learn more about how this practice can work well in many different situations, um, hopefully it becomes more commonplace and then more accepted. Because I think with many people, there's a whole knee-jerk reaction about, oh, you know, if they if if this person rapes someone, then they should be raped back, or they should be chucked into prison forever. But this is not justice for everybody, and not not every victim wants that. Um, so, so there is a there is a big question, um, and it it remains to be answered about how to get information about these programs out there without um, without scaring more people into avoiding these situations because. The idea of restorative justice is actually scary and it's confronting and you have to sit with it a while or in most situations you have to sit with it a while to become comfortable with the idea of maybe, maybe saying something to the people who hurt you. And it's not going to be for everyone, but it will be useful, hopefully, to many people. And then I guess there's a whole question about um, what uh, power, I suppose, that process has to bring the people to the table if it's initiated uh, voluntarily by a victim survivor. How do yeah. how do you bring the other people to the room without that legal authority of the court yeah. proceeding? Yeah, yeah. Maybe the answer is not that we need to bring everybody in to the table whether they want it, because there are studies of um, victim satisfaction or you know of of victims' attitudes after having engaged in even writing a letter to the person that they wanted to invite to the table was seen as cathartic and a measure of satisfaction. Um, there's a quite a famous study, I think, from 
Denmark, there was a Copenhagen program where, you know, the, again, the process was voluntary. There was no you know, legal authority to bring anybody to the table, mm. to, you know, and not like a court process. And many of the people who, many of the women who wrote letters to the person that they wanted to bring to the table, some of them didn't hear back. But many of them, many of those people said, actually, it was enough for me to sit down, write that letter, draw up the courage to demand a form of accountability, and that was enough. Um, and I guess this um, this brings us back to the core concept of the fact that like no victim is alike. And so some victims are going to be extremely disappointed, and they're going to have to be well prepared by the therapeutic professional whom they're working with um, to, to prepare for the possibility that maybe this thing that they really want, this conference that they really want, will not happen because the perpetrator will not respond. But then, in other situations, a victim really, really wants a prosecution, and they don't care. Or not. Of course, they know that they will be affected by the cross-examination, but um, it doesn't matter to them the degree of... Um, the degree of scrutiny that they go through because they did want to go through a prosecution to put their abuser to proof. So every single victim is different. Um, no one, you know, no one process or no one legal compulsion to come to the restorative justice table um, is going to work for everybody, and, and in many cases, it will not be, be required. Thank you. And uh, just before we wrap up, you mentioned the importance of dissemination of information so that people are aware that this restorative justice uh, process and programs are available. And you, you said it was your job to get that information out. Can you tell us uh, what you mean by that from a researcher's perspective? You know, is there a duty to disseminate your own research to make sure it's utilised? I think so. So I think um, um, my my earlier papers have been cited quite extensively um, in the in my field. So I think that's enough research dissemination um, in the actual academic field. But I think I do think that as researchers we have an, uh, an, um, a responsibility to talk about our work, you know, in venues like this and in you know with stakeholders because there is there is so much interesting work going on out there, and you're interviewing many different interesting people today, um, which means that we need to. You know, unfortunately, we live in a competitive society where we need to fight for each other's attention. Um, and so for me, specifically, what dissemination will look like once I've finally got my thesis in, hopefully by the end of this year, um, we'll be writing up summary reports. Summary reports of um, the what we've learned about developments in Victoria that have led to restorative justice becoming openly accepted as something that we might do and by, you know, being funded by government. And so I'd write a summary report um, um, to be able to disseminate it to governments that are kind of tinkering with the idea but not sure about the public, um, the, the possible public reaction to it. Um, and then I would write a, another summary report um, discussing the different restorative justice programs that I found in the literature, what their identified strengths were, what their identified weaknesses were, how some of these weaknesses might be remediated, um, and then I'd want to disseminate that to governments that are already doing restorative justice or already um, and already doing it quite well, such as New Zealand. Many places in the United States are doing it. Many places in the UK are doing it um, in their NGOs. Um, and then, of course, Victoria and many jurisdictions in Australia are doing it quite well or enthusiastically. Um, and so, I'd, you know, I need to email some people. <laughs> mm. So it's quite a, a, a parallel process alongside the actual PhD uh, research and the paper you're writing to make sure that uh, the information's getting out to the right endpoints. Yeah, I really think so. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Um, 
I can't imagine what it must be like to be trying to finalise a PhD before Christmas. <laughs> I haven't started any Christmas shopping, so I'm very glad I don't have a PhD to complete as well. Um, but uh, we wish you best of luck and this is such an important area and we'd love to talk to you again down the track uh, to hear more about um, how it's going and developing. Thank you for having me. Thank you. And that was Barrister and Monash University PhD candidate Daye Gang speaking about her doctoral research looking at restorative justice in sexual and family violence. And if you require support or wish to speak to someone following this segment, the numbers for respect are 1800 737 732 or you can visit 1800respect.org.au. Beyond Blue, 1300, 226636, and Lifeline, 131114. And of course, in an emergency, please call 000. We're going to take a break, and then we'll be back to talk with Stacey Pitchin about migrant communities and drowning. Buddhist tradition first came to the land of snow in the 5th century AD. The first Tibetan king to be touched by the Dharma was King Hathathorignanputsan. He and succeeding kings were collectively known as the Happy Generations.
And you're back listening to Wednesday Breakfast, 8.55am on the dial at 3cr.org.au for live streaming. And we just heard a song called Wikipedia Generation by Cornwave. We're now going to jump into our next segment when we have a guest on the line who will be familiar to our regular listeners, Stacey Pidgeon, Manager of Research and Policy at the Royal Life Saving Society of Australia, joined us last week to share the latest on water safety and drowning prevention. This week, Stacey is back to talk about her PhD research investigating the burden of drowning among Australia's culturally diverse migrant populations. She joins me now to explain why her research was necessary and its potential to shift outcomes for migrant communities spending time in Australian waters. Welcome back to 3CR, Stacey. Good morning. Lovely to have you again. Thank you very much for this opportunity. Now, you say that people from culturally diverse backgrounds are considered to be at high risk for drowning in Australia, and yet there is a gap in evidence supporting this statement. Can you explain what was known about migrant communities and water safety when you embarked on your PhD and why you felt it was necessary to know more? That's a really interesting question. Um, I think in the last few years we've seen a lot in the media around uh, different people who drown um, and you know where where they've come from or you know whether or not they're tourists or people who live in Australia. Um, but that's not necessarily accurate um, either, and we know that sometimes the the media doesn't always get this get the story right. And while it's important to raise awareness of issues such as drowning and and people's safety, um, in terms of I guess people's preconceptions, um, it yeah it doesn't doesn't give the full picture. So when we started looking at um, you know who actually does drown, obviously we know that males are. Um, a big issue in terms of drowning, but looking at sort of other demographics, we know Australia has a very multicultural population, um, which is fantastic, but it also means um, that some people may not have had the same opportunities as others to learn how to swim, or there might be um, different barriers in accessing swimming and water safety programs um, for many different reasons. And so we wanted to delve a little bit more into that, um, primarily because, you know, drowning rates, unfortunately, um, haven't been been getting any better, and so we really need to have a look at are our messages getting through? Um, if not, why not? And how can we best reach all of our communities across Australia? And how did you go about framing a PhD to address the knowledge gap? And what are the outcomes you're hoping to achieve? So we're quite lucky here in Australia. We have a national water safety strategy. Um, and when I started the PhD in 2018, the um, Australian Water Safety Strategy 2016 to 2020 was in place that identified um, high-risk populations, but they were all lumped into one. So we had Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, uh, international students, uh, tourists, and people born overseas, sort of all lumped into that high-risk population. And of course, all of those um, all of those populations are very different, and uh, and may have different uh, risk factors and different profiles. Um, knowledge, all that type of thing. And so um, when I started looking at it, we didn't actually know, um, you know, what the proportion of people who were born overseas uh, was drowning. We were looking at these other groups, often those groups that do get quite a lot of media attention. Um, and also all of a sudden there became funding available for a lot of different swimming and water safety programs. Um, but 
there wasn't necessarily the evidence behind it to say that, yes, this is a problem and swimming and water safety programs are going to help. So that was sort of the premise for um, my PhD, to try and find out more, but really for in terms of um, improving outcomes around increasing access for swimming and water safety education for people of all backgrounds, because, again, we know that there are some barriers that we didn't know a lot about, uh, so we wanted to know more about that. Uh, but also, at the end of the day, we want to make sure that uh, people have the knowledge to keep themselves and their families safer around water and reduce the long-term drowning burden. Um, and then we're very lucky in, in 2021, the new Australian uh, new Australian water safety strategy was released and in part with some of the research that I've been doing, we were able to get a section that really focuses on multicultural communities uh, as a, I guess, a single group, knowing that there's many groups be, uh, within that. Uh, but now that it's been singled out, as have Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities as well. Yeah, we'll come to um, that council strategy in a moment. Just coming back to the work that you've done yourself, I know you've done a lot of different studies with different groups of people to understand the risk factors that can apply to different migrant populations. What have you found so far? Well, the first study that we did um, was looking at the numbers in Australia. So Royal Lifesaving holds the National Fatal Drowning Database um, and we get that information. So that includes everyone who has died by drowning across Australia um, and we get that information from the National Coronial Information System. It's an incredibly rich database. Um, we do have a lot of information uh, but we didn't know a lot about people who were born overseas or, or what country um, you know people were from but also how long they've been in Australia for as well. So that was one of the first studies that I did um, and we, we looked at um, yeah, country of birth, how long people have been in Australia for, what their reasons for, were for you know, um, residing or being a student or, or things like that. And then what we found was about 30% of all drowning deaths were people who were born overseas. And a lot of people were quite surprised about that because when we put it in context of the population, it's not actually overrepresented like a lot of people thought. Um, it does change from state to state, and there certainly are a couple of states where, the, where that um, figure is a little bit higher. Um, but what we also found is when we looked into how long someone had been in Australia for, again, there's the perception that it's all you know, new arrivals or new migrants. But we actually found um, about the same proportion of people had been in Australia for 20 years or more and had been in Australia for less than five years. So I guess you've got your, your new migrants who might not have had the, the opportunity to learn about swimming and water safety skills. Um, you know, they've come, they've come to jump into the, the Australian way of life around the water, I suppose you could say. But equally, we've got those people who have been in Australia for a long time. You know, it might not be a priority, or people might not have had the time or the money to, um, you know, pursue some of our aquatic um lifestyle and, and leisure um, until they get sort of more settled and, and later on in life. So it was really interesting. Those two key groups came through very strongly. And what are some of the factors that you found within those groups? You, you talked about how they're new arrivals and long-term uh, migrant residents um, or citizens are equally represented in the, the drowning data. What, what are some of the commonalities that are applying widespread across these groups? Well, the thing is, 
patterns and trends that are not too dissimilar to what we're seeing across the board for drowning. So unfortunately, alcohol still played a part. Um, we've got pre-existing medical conditions, particularly uh, people who are older, uh, most definitely, and also not wearing a life jacket when boating or fishing. So those are consistent risk factors for drowning across the board, but we did see it very clearly uh, come through in uh, the study of people who were born overseas as well. Um, in terms of other risk factors, while this just while this um, first study just focused on, I guess, the numbers and the statistics. Um, certainly education probably plays a part in that, and that sort of was the focus of another study that I did. Um, But in terms of kind of key risk factors, time in Australia did seem to be be a big one. But, yeah, I think age, most of the people who drowned were, um, particularly in that new or under five years, were aged between 18 and 25. Um, And then the older age group were sort of anywhere sort of from 45 onwards. So um, while they were just the numbers, we certainly can draw some conclusions in terms of knowledge, attitudes, behaviour and things like that. But that also sort of left us with a lot of gaps. So that sort of led on to my next study. Which was? Sorry? Your next study? The next study was focusing on uh, migrants' knowledge, attitudes and behaviour around water. But also at the same time, we looked at some of the programs that were were available as well. As I said earlier, there was a lot of funding sort of coming out for swimming programs and water safety programs. So we looked at um, particularly women. We know that women um, sometimes don't get the same access uh, and equity to swimming and water safety programs in education uh, than other people do. So we looked at programs available for migrant adults as well as uh, knowledge, attitudes and behaviours as well. So we did find that um, the participants who did um, participate in those swimming and water safety programs really got value out of them. So of course they learnt some swimming and water safety skills, which is fantastic, but also had a number of other um, outcomes as well. So making friends, um, increased fitness and exercise, uh, feeling more happier and more relaxed. Uh, so these programs are, what we found is these programs are not only providing swimming and water safety skills, which are incredibly important, but they're providing those equally as important health and wellbeing benefits as well. That's fantastic. And the Council uh, of Australian Water Safety, you said that they've uh, introduced this information that's been informed by your research for multicultural communities. And I was having a look um, through that and I just wondered um, when I could see that there's a very detailed one-page set of strategies and key activities that the council would like to do. Um, how's, how does that fit with what your research found? Were you happy with the way uh, your findings have been reflected in the council's strategy? And were you involved in that process beyond producing the actual research? So in terms of the strategy, um, so this is the Australian Water Safety Strategy 2030. Um, It takes a 10-year approach as opposed to uh, previous strategies that have only looked at, I guess, five years, so relatively short term. And what we wanted to do with this particular um, identify those key population areas. Um, so certainly my research has informed the fact that multicultural communities are now a, a separate priority area in the strategy, and I was involved in that um, 
and developing and producing that um, section of the strategy along with some of our key uh, partners in the industry and also community leaders as well. So really what we're, what that focuses on is the whole strategy aims to reduce drowning by 50% by 2030. And that's the ultimate, uh, I guess, um, goal for each of the priority areas. So there's 15 priority areas uh, in the strategy. Multicultural communities is one of them. And then as you mentioned, there's, a, I guess, a, a one-pager in terms of a short, medium and long-term uh, activities and goals um, that have all been, I guess, developed in a bid to reduce drowning. Um, and it covers research, policy, advocacy, because as, I guess, Royal Life Saving, we can't do one without the other. So it's important to have the research, but also equally that research then goes to underpin any campaigns or any programs uh, so that it's all evidence-based. So I think that's really important. Fantastic. Yeah, the work that I do, that's really how it is being used um, in terms of providing that evidence um, and justification for some of these activities. Thank you so much. We're going to have to wrap up there. It's great to talk to you again, and we will put uh, some of those links on our our website. Thank you. That was uh, Stacey Pidgeon talking about her research into understanding the burden of drowning amongst migrant populations in Australia. And we're going to jump into our next segment now. Yes, that's right. Um, Our last interview is going to round out the show, so I'm going to announce it all and we'll say goodbye. Um, This is Christina, who is a PhD student investigating strategies to bring ecological knowledge to support place for both humans and non-humans to coexist. She brings in her own knowledge as an ecologist uh, in her project, Letting Nature Speak. So we're going to jump right in with my first question, which was um, on the language of this project and what it means. So, Chris, in this project, you use the principle biosensitive design a lot. Uh, Could you explain this term and how it works within your project? Interesting. Um, Can I change it to biodiversity inclusive rather than sensitive? (laughs) Um, It's it's sort of a a language that keeps evolving, right? That, That is indeed what the PhD does. You started at, like, it started out with, how can we be biodiversity friendly? And then it's like, no, no, biodiversity sensitive. And then at some point I really got to the point where I realized it's biodiversity inclusive because um, it's all around participatory design. And when we're doing participatory design, we can ask people, what is it that you want? What is it that you need? What needs to be changed in this ecosystem, urban space to make it better for you? Um, But with, with species, we can't really ask them that. Um, they're not going to answer in any form of language that we're going to be able to understand unless we really spend time looking and learning about all the different species around us, which is where ecologists come, come in. So it's really about finding ways to translate all of that ecological knowledge, which can sometimes be a little bit dry and you know, use terms like the ecological requirements. And, and we need to change it into something that's a little bit more emotional, that it touches us, and that makes us want to act for biodiversity. Because uh, there's no doubt in my mind that design, planning, and all these, you know, built form um, that we're creating around us is part of the solution to the biodiversity emergency that we're living right now. Why the focus on design for the basis of your project rather than avenues of, I don't know, policy or planning? So I think that 
there are many, many, many ecologists out there that are advocating for um, great ways of um, planning for biodiversity. Um, so there's many studies that look at, for example, how can we map out um, biodiversity, find those priority areas that we've got to preserve and take care of, and then prioritize the rest for development. Um, so there's many, many studies that are working at that really large landscape scale. But there's not that many who are looking into how do we then translate these really big, large scale strategy into what can I do here and now? Um, so I really wanted to focus in on what can I do? And designers are the ones that are creating and actively modifying the environment quickly. Within design conversations, there's often talk of bringing voices to the table, uh, but with biodiversities, animals and plants, that's not easy to do in a traditional sense. So how do you capture those voices in your research? Um, well, first off, we got we got to stop thinking about biodiversity as a single entity. Um, and we really split it up into all the different species, habitats, even natural cycles. Um, and then it's about bringing in ecologists to the table. And when I say ecologists, it's also quite specific because we tend to have, you know, like the, the person that's really an expert on water and then the person that's really an expert on birds and forests. So you've got to figure out not one ecologist, many ecologists that you need to bring into that, that design table that are knowledgeable about the local ecology um, where you're working on. And then actually listen to them and give them the, the, the place to be um, advocates for those species. You recently um, tested this consultation process in a Melbourne property. Could you tell us more about the workshop that you led? So this is a workshop that I call the Ecology of Place workshop. Um, so it's a little residential redevelopment project where um, the the client, I'm going to say, um, Chris Buntine and Sun Buntine, they are very passionate about um, how can I prove to the world that it's possible to be sustainable and resilient and regenerative at an affordable um, price. And they gave me the space where for three hours we were just talking ecology and species. So during that day, we started out by having that conversation that I was just talking about, where it's like, let, let's remember what is it that we love about nature. Um, in the very beginning, it was not geographically localized at all. So it was like, tell me a story about when you are surrounded by nature and you're at your happiest. So that everyone told a little, little short story. And it was... Um, it was very interesting to see how for most of them, it was things that you would love to live every single day. Like I love walking in the beach and feeling the sand on my toes, um, or there was the sound of water. And it's things that we, when you think about it, there are special days that we go out to nature rather than everyday experiences of nature. Um, because we keep separating nature from cities. Um, so 
at the very beginning, the conversation was generic. Just, just make you remember what you love about nature. But after that, I started telling them the story about the ecology of the place that they were in. So I talked about what the landscape used to look like, what I found about, you know, how the soils of that area get formed, the species that we see, um, everything that's changed in the area and why, and help, I guess, paint a picture of what we used to have before and what we have now and why. And then I ask them again, what nature experiences do we want to have here? But then now that they knew the story about this particular locality and they could um, see how that landscape has changed, they started asking for experiences that represented a little bit more of what should be in this area rather than, you know, the maybe tokenistic idea that we tend to have where we just want all the plants to be lush and, you know, vibrant, rainforesty, but we're not in a rainforest in Melbourne. It's not realistic. And suddenly the conversation changed. And I, like, I gave them some um, cards of different plants and animals that have been found in the area over the past 200 years. Some of them are still there. Some of them are not there anymore, but maybe we, we want to bring them back. And I actually made them research that species for a tiny bit of time and then tell to each other, do you think that we should design for that species? Yes, no, why? So then they were telling the stories and then they were becoming the advocates for all the different um, plants and animals that we ended up selecting for the projects. This brings us to what you're doing currently, which is developing a toolkit for planners that captures all of this research and puts it into a set of principles and tools that they can use to be inclusive in their design. But throughout this uh, interview, you've spoken a lot about storytelling and more of the empathetic connection we have with nature. So how is that going to be brought into the toolkit and what's it going to look like? (laughs) Isn't that the question? Um, It's There's many different tools in the toolkit, and some of those are about empathy. Uh, And some of them are about guiding your thinking. So uh, I'm hopefully very soon to be publishing a paper where the the tool is actually that I've analyzed many different frameworks that are giving designers an almost step-by-step guide of the things that they should be doing at different stages of their design to to think about biodiversity as um, all of these multiple non-human stakeholders to design for. So it goes from, you know, it's like, how do you choose the species that you're going to be designing for um, to um, how do you evaluate Uh, how much whatever you design is going to benefit the species that you've chosen. Um, So we've got the very first tool is um, those frameworks, right? And and understanding what each of those frameworks gives you and when those frameworks are most useful. So that's a a thinking tool. Um, 
then there's going to also be some more tangible tools. Like um, I've been interviewing designers and I've been getting the little tips and tools that, that they've been using. My personal favorite tool was um, one of my interviewees. It's actually about a tool on negotiation, I guess I would call it. Actually, a lesson learned that they kept going to the council and saying, can we do this? Can we do that? And the council kept saying, no, 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 because it takes work to change things. And suddenly they went, we are going to do this. How can we make it work? And the conversation changes. They're no longer asking for permission. And, and something changed in all the people that they were consulting with in the council that suddenly the council is working for them to help them solve the issues that they have. So again, it's, that one's not tangible, but it's a tool. So there's the toolkit is going to have a little bit of everything, some thinking, some tangible, some tips and tricks to, to, making, to making the project happen um, because it is actually one of the biggest um, barriers that um, biodiversity gets diluted or even designed out of the project because it's seen as extra, like it's seen as the nice to have rather than the must. So we really need to change the way that we talk and have those conversations um, so that it becomes an integral part of a project and is not the nice to have. Teresa Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au.